If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we'll be opening up to Ezekiel chapter 6 today. If it seems like we're going backwards, don't worry, we're going to end up at the end of Ezekiel. We're going to be reading from early on a passage that we did not look at in our initial uh, run through. Uh, we've been studying, again, uh, the book of Ezekiel, really the life and the ministry of Ezekiel. And, and today is our last look at, at least for now, uh, at Ezekiel's experience, his unlikely, unexpected experience with God. When, when, when he first started in ministry, you'll remember his life was completely unraveled. Uh, he, along with the royal family of Judah and the priestly tribe, his priestly tribe, his family, uh, Levi, they were exiled to Babylon, uh, while the rest of the brothers and sisters of Judah and of Israel were left back home as vassals, as servants, really. Uh, at, at least they were able to reign in the land, but their lives were, were much different than it had been before. Uh, God came to Ezekiel as a refugee, as a captive there uh, in one of the camps in Babylon. God came to Ezekiel and told him that he wanted to use him as a prophet, that even though that he thought he would have a certain life as a, as a priest in the temple, everything had changed, that still yet in captivity, he would be used as a prophet, as a messenger to the exiled Jews, to his brothers and sisters that were in captivity with him, uh, to help them understand why God had allowed all this to happen. Because God was indeed sovereign over their captivity and over their exile. His initial words were very encouraging. Even though they were uncomfortable, even though they were scared, even though it was completely unknown for them and what they were going through, uh, his initial words were encouraging and empowering as we've looked at the last couple of weeks. He told them that their exile was going to be an entry point or an entrance into an experience with God like none other that they would not be able to have if not for this sequence of unfortunate and unwelcomed events. But then God gave Ezekiel a pretty challenging task. He called on him to write a letter uh, and send back home to Judah, to the thousands of Jews who were still in the land. He call, called on Ezekiel to write a letter to the people back in Judah. Those that were wondering what was going to happen next, uh, as many had been taken captive, as life was much different, they had been given a puppet king uh, named Zedekiah. Uh, the, the king that their, their, their king had been killed. His son, is, his son was killed, and then another uh, son of the, the the family of Judah was placed in as the king. They. Babylon thought he would be kind of a mouthpiece. He would be a puppet. So Zedekiah was made to be king. He was just 20 years old. He really didn't know what he was doing, but that was the point. He wasn't supposed to know what he was doing. He was supposed to just let Nebuchadnezzar make decisions for him. Uh, before long, Babylonian soldiers were occupying the land. So it was clear that Israel may seem to be free, but it was not free. Uh, the land of Judah was a, a vassal state. It was an occupied territory. Uh, and those that were left would see a life that would be much different. But as long as they remained loyal to Babylon, maybe they would survive. As they were waiting on what might happen next, uh, so too were the exiled Jews who were hopeful that God was going to pull something out at the last minute and bring them back home, uh, defeat Babylon, and, and, and restore the kingdom. And as it seemed to be, Ezekiel's promises were that God was going to do something new, and, and they were hoping that would be sooner then later, and Ezekiel himself was confident that th this was going to be short term, that they were all going to be back in Judah very, very soon. But God gives Ezekiel a very, <laughs> a very challenging word 
to send back home. And, and this would have been as challenging for Ezekiel to write down and read himself as it would for those back home to hear. So Ezekiel 6, if you have your places, uh, look the first seven verses for God's word about what was going to happen to the land of Judah. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face toward the mountain of Israel and prophesy against them. And this is God's way of saying, Ezekiel, I want you to send them a letter. You're not there in person. You're going to send them a word, and it's going to be from your mouth onto a parchment, and we're going to send this back to, to Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, this is God talking, I will bring a sword against you and destroy your high places. Then your altars will be desolate, your incense altars will be broken. I will cast down your, your slain men before your idols. I will lay the corpses of your children of, of Israel, of the children of Israel before their idols. I will scatter your bones all around your altar. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste. The high places shall be desolate so that your altars may be laid waste and may be made desolate. Your idols will be broken and may decease. Your incense altars may be cut down. Your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Israel, we, we've learned, they were unfaithful to God. They had built idols and served other gods. And God says to the people of Israel, this captivity I've taken some into is because of your adultery. The, the enslavery that I've given you over to is because of your adultery. And I am going to allow Babylon to finish the job. It's going to finish the nation of Israel off. There will be no nation of Israel in just a few short days. He goes on to say, the only ones who will survive are those already in captivity and a few thousand more that will be made slaves. Can you imagine? Imagine you're Ezekiel and you are, you're holding out hope that things are going to work out. Yeah, they've done some wrong things. Yes, they're being punished. Yes, they're being disciplined. Yes, God has said things need to be corrected. But if you're Ezekiel, you're holding out hope that things are going to get better, that God is going to save the nation in spite of what they have done wrong. And they've done a lot wrong. Can you imagine how devastating this would have been for Ezekiel to communicate? Can you imagine where his head was at, much less the rest of the people? But can you imagine Ezekiel, who trusted that God was gonna do something and work things out for the good? Can you imagine what he must have been feeling as all this was happening? What became apparent to Ezekiel is that God wanted him to feel his own heartbreak, that God was heartbroken over the people of Israel having left him. So Ezekiel was kind of, kind of a stand-in for God, that God wanted Ezekiel to feel what it was like to have your chosen people forbid you or forsake you and walk away from you. And God wanted Ezekiel to begin to passionately intercede for the nation so that those who remain might return to God and not fall away. And of course, God used uh, all this to show Ezekiel that he was going to install a new covenant, one that would change the hearts of the people, one that would knit the hearts to God in a deeper and devoted and personal way. But Ezekiel the man, Ezekiel still had to process all of this. And, and there were times where he legitimately wondered if it would actually get better. And what if this wasn't going to happen in his lifetime? What if it was going to be so far in the future that he and his generation were just going to have to suffer through whatever this was going to be? 
While the remnant he ministered to, they didn't show any signs of repentance. They showed no signs of passion for God. And sometime in this whole timeline, to make matters even more somewhat cruel, Ezekiel fell in love. And that's not the cruel part. He fell in love and he got married. He, we don't know much about his, he and his wife's relationship, but nonetheless, they were trying to make the best of an unideal situation, uh, and, and they were trying to start a family together. And we don't know, uh, we don't know much about who she was and, and, and where they met, but we know that Ezekiel loved his wife. She was one of the few bright spots, maybe the only bright spot in otherwise dark and difficult life. She was the light to his eyes. She kept him hopeful. His life seemed to be taking away one hope after another. But unfortunately, God had different plans for Ezekiel's marriage. And let me say this. There are some things that happen in life that we can't explain. And there are some things that we read about in the Bible that happen to the people that God chose and loved and anointed that happen to them that we can't understand. And we must trust that God knows what he's doing. And that when things are beyond our comprehension, that God is working something out for something greater than we could ever have imagined. With that being said, if you would, turn over to Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 24, verse number 15, we'll pick up there. As Ezekiel ministers to the people, he tells them, hey, it's not going to get better. He's waiting to hear how bad it's getting back home. But meanwhile, as he's trying to communicate to the people God's plans for the nation we hear this word. Ezekiel 24, verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall tears run down your face. Now, if God comes to you, and again, if God comes to you and prefaces, hey, I'm taking away the one thing that you love the most, but hey, listen, you're not gonna cry. You're not going to cry. You're going to accept this. Now, I don't know about you. You may be as as faithful and devoted as you can be, but I don't know about, I I, I can say for my part, I'm going to stop and say, God, I don't know where you're going with this, but I don't think that's how it's going to work. I mean, you're already telling me this is going to be the worst thing that could ever happen to me, but I'm not allowed to feel anything or I'm not allowed to express it. That's the point. Oh, you're allowed to feel it, but you can't show it. And again, Ezekiel was supposed to be a stand-in for God, so he was especially chosen for this, but still this was very difficult for anybody, even the prophet of God. So God says in verse 17, Sigh in silence, but make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put on your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So Ezekiel, you're going to deal with this, and it's going to be done in private, but I want you to project an image to the people that it's not even phasing you. Verse 18, so I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening, my wife died. And the next morning, and this is the, so the brutal part of it all. The next morning, I did as I was commanded. Can you imagine Ezekiel? His wife is taken from him. But he got up and he did, exactly what God told him to do. What else could he do? But you have to think about deep down inside, he was wondering where all this was going. And as time went on, he must have wondered, 
what's going on back home? Because if it's getting this bad here for me and this is what God wants me to feel, then it must be really bad back home in Israel. And, and, and God actually showed Ezekiel, if you read the whole book, uh, back in chapter 10, you can see a glimpse of, that God gave glimpses to Ezekiel of what was going on back home. Uh, the temple was defiled by Nebuchadnezzar's men. Uh, Ezekiel gets to see a vision of the glory of God, the Holy Spirit of God, leaving the temple and, 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 and des- leaving it desolate. And ultimately, he gets to see the temple destroyed by Babylon. Ezekiel sees a vision of the armies of Israel choosing to resist Babylonian control and prepping to go out to the valley surrounding Judah into Jericho and declare war on Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel knew this is not going to go well. But there was no way for him to know how it went unless God were to show him. And he wasn't really keen on seeing because he knew it wouldn't work out. But according to Jeremiah, we know what happened. Jeremiah tells us in 2 Kings chapter 24 that Zedekiah, the king, rebelled against the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah did what he was told not to do. He raised an army and he began to plan to go out into the valley and declare that he was going to uh, overthrow the Babylonian control. Well, they marched out to fight Babylon and surprise, surprise, Babylon was already surrounding the area because they heard whispers of dissent and they marched its armies in and besieged the city. So the armies of Judah actually create a diversion and they go back into the city and they literally tear down one of their own walls meant to protect them, which would have sounded like a bad idea. But they were running out of time and and, and they were running out of ideas. So the armies of Israel, they tear a hole in the wall, tear down part of the, the Jerusalem wall and they exit through the back door, if you will. And they're hoping that when the armies of Babylon see the armies of Judah going north, that the city will be spared and perhaps the city can, can, can find another place or, or of refuge until the war ends. So this was more of a falling on their sword sort of last ditch strategy. This is what the text tells us, 2 Kings 5, 25. A breach was made in the city wall and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls. By the king's garden, the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, were around the city, and they went into the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains or the valley of Jericho, a valley that was between Jerusalem and the northern region of Samaria. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, overtook him, and his army was scattered. They captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they passed sentence on him and this is the brutal ending. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And after this, the city was burned. The people were enslaved or killed. There was no Israel from that point forward. Now, Ezekiel didn't know these details, of course. We know them because God preserved them for us. But Ezekiel didn't know these details. He couldn't help but imagine how Israel's plan to free themselves must have went. And once again, once again, unfortunately, God said, okay, Ezekiel, don't worry. I'll fill you in on the details. I'll show you. And and, and this is one of the only times that we see God talking to Ezekiel where he doesn't just show him a vision but he literally transports Ezekiel. Now he could have showed him a dream, it could have been a vision, but the way the text says that God literally took Ezekiel and relocated him so he could see something for himself. And again, this could have just been a vision. 
But the language there senses that Ezekiel was taken to that very valley, that very plain of Jericho where the armies of Israel would have been defeated, where the king of Israel would have been, had his eyes removed and his sons killed in front of him. So turn over with me to Ezekiel 37 for this episode. This is the valley that Zedekiah's army would have been defeated in. To Ezekiel, it would have been too real and too painful. The scripture says in 37 verse 1, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. And it was full of the bones of his brothers of, uh, of Judah. It was full of the armies of Judah that had just been slain in this very valley. And in these days, when a king or a conquering king invaded a territory and slew an army, he didn't clean up the mess. He left it there daring anyone else to ever raise a hand against him to this valley that was the men of Judah it was their remains at this point God takes Ezekiel and places him in this valley full of bones or full of dry bones as we call it verse 2 and he calls me to pass by them all around and behold there were very many in the open valley or in the open plain and indeed they were very Dry, as in it, they were dead and they weren't, they weren't coming back to life. No matter how many promises he would have heard and received, Ezekiel would have been forced to wrestle with these questions. What good could come from this? What, what, what is God going to do to redeem us from this? This is our army, this is our nation, this is our leadership. This, is, this was our only hope. What good can come from this? And what use is there, what use is there to keep hoping and believing after this? If he had thrown in the towel here, he, his life was not as it expected. He lost his family, his wife was taken from him and now he gets to see firsthand what happened to his brother's and arms his brothers that fought for their land. If he had thrown in the towel here, could you blame him? I mean, would you blame if he had quit believing? Now let me ask you a different question. Have you ever thought about giving up? Now I know the premise is vague, but everyone knows what I mean when I say, have you ever thought about giving up, don't you? Now, your situation may be different from your neighbor's, and you may be thinking about something that's completely different from what I'm thinking about. But have you ever faced a set of circumstances? Have you ever been dealt a hand of cards? Have you ever attempted to process a load of information and thought to yourself, what's the use? There's no coming back from this. There's no getting better from this. There's no hope. Now, I know this may evoke some strong emotions for some of you because, I, because the thought of giving up is not just a thought experiment. It's real. And, and if you've ever been to that point where you thought about giving up and, and, and to the point of giving up in life in general, I know this is not an easy place to go because if you've been there, it's much harder to be there than to think about it. Life has pushed many seemingly strong individuals to a point of no return. And while it's easy to stand from afar and give our opinion, those in the fire don't feel like there's another choice for them. Every choice you consider seems like a bad choice. 
Now, I'm not asking you to, to, to I'm not asking this question to condemn you, or I'm not going to try to swoop in with a few verses and say you should never tr- think about giving up. Shame on you. You should know better. Uh, and, and again, uh, maybe you're living in the aftermath of having given up on a relationship or being given up on, in the aftermath of giving up on a dream and calling an opportunity. I'm also not expecting a three-point sermon uh, to, to make you never have those feelings again. That's not what I'm here to do for you or to give to you. I think in some capacity, we've all thought about giving up with regards to a personal situation, a relationship, an opportunity. We've all thought about giving up. We've all considered giving up. And in a lot of ways, we've all given up before in some capacity. Maybe many times over, maybe you're living in the aftermath of having given up or having been given up on. Now, there are different degrees and levels of giving up, of course, right? If you give up on a crossword puzzle, that's a pretty mild thing. You'll be okay, right? If you give up on a class in school and change the direction of your education, that's a big deal, but you can recover from that. If you give up on a relationship, sometimes that's not always life-altering. Sometimes it is. But if you give up on a career that you put a lot into, that takes a lot out of you. If you give up on a family member, (laughs) you're losing part of you. If you give up on a future that you had planned, there's heavy consequences, there's heavy decisions that you've got to make. You get to a place where you think about giving up, it's not a pathway that weak people arrive at. And I want to make that very clear. That giving up is not something that weak people do. It's not a weak mind that considers giving up. It's a worn, exhausted, battle-scarred soul that wrestles with this question. Now, I don't open up too often about my personal experiences, mostly because I'm very private, um, but maybe uh, I don't open up for the same reasons you don't open up uh, because something in us says that if we're honest about our most frustrating seasons, people might look at us differently. Uh, but Christian circles in places like this should be safe places that we can be honest and, and we should have confidence that we can tell people what we've been through. 20 years ago, can't believe it's been this long, 20 years ago, um, 2002 was a year that changed my life, and, and I wouldn't be here if not for what I went through and what I started to go through. It was the beginning of, of a whole process. Uh, I know I've shared a lot of stories from a couple decades ago, the last couple of weeks, and it's because I've been combing through my memory preparing for this message particularly. The other stories kind of just came up as I began going back through my memory. Um, but 2002 was the beginning of a season of my life where in giving up would have been very easy. Early that year, uh, my first year of middle school was coming to an end, and, and, and this isn't about middle school, but middle school is sometimes challenging. Uh, if you're, uh, I know Lim's, uh, some other kids are about to, get, about to go back to school, and sometimes school can be a little bit overwhelming, right? I, I've been there. Um, I, I had never really liked school, but by fourth or fifth grade, I kind of gotten used to my elementary school, but then it all was taken back, taken away, and I had to start at ground zero again. Um, so I, I think uh, I ended up a little bit below ground by the time middle school was over. It was a pretty rough experience. Uh, you know, there, there's picked on and there's whatever I went through, but I made it. So I'm okay. I'm a little bit damaged. I'm a little bit sensitive because of some of the stuff that went on, but I'm, I'm okay. I, I think I'm better for it. Uh, but uh, if you ever go in one of our cabinet shops and you wonder why there's a pull-up bar hanging on the wall, it's because of how damaging gym class was for me. Um, so don't ever ask me about that or ask me if I can do, I might can do pull-ups, but I couldn't do them back then. Um, so uh, that, was a, that was a pretty, pretty rough couple of months what, going through that process. But 
This isn't about that. I don't want to get sidetracked. Um, it was the end of my sixth grade year, uh, and the last period we had went outside for the day because um, they were trying to introduce us into intramural sports and showing us that the next year we could stay after if we wanted to and play other sports. So we were playing kickball, and, and if you know me, I'm not very athletic uh, from riding bikes to whatever else you can do with sticks and balls. That's not my deal, uh, and, it, and I really got this honestly. Uh, but uh, I, I, I knew how to kick a ball, and I thought I knew how to run to a base without falling, but apparently I didn't. So so uh, I kicked the ball and ran to first base. And if you would have been watching and people that were watching, it was, it was a pretty innocuous fall. It looked very harmless. Uh, but uh, I knew as soon as I fell that something was not right. And on that late April afternoon in 2002, that was the last normal step that I have ever taken. Now I'm walking pretty normal right now, but we'll explain that later. The last normal step that I took, that I've taken, was April 20 years ago. Now, I'll spare you the details, but after limping around for a few days, eventually my knee was pretty swollen and basically was, uh, walking was impossible. I fell on a Thursday by the next week. I was, my leg was as stiff as, you could, uh, as it could be, and I was awaiting an orthopedic appointment. So after a few scans, spring turned into summer and June turned into, or May, April turned into August uh, and uh, went through a whole summer of physical therapy three times a week. The swelling went down, the stiffness went away, but my ability to walk did not come back. At this point, I was being referred to my third orthopedic doctor, and it was right uh, going into September as the school year had just started. So I just started seventh grade, and that was not going very well. Uh, I had ended school on crutches. I was now back in school on crutches. People didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what to tell them because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And you can, can imagine how middle schoolers might would, uh, would not make that the easiest on you. But I didn't want to talk about it. It was kind of embarrassing. Nobody knew what to do. So I just kind of kept quiet about it and just tried to make the best of it. On top of whatever else was going on inside my knee, after not walking on it for four months, as the rest of, as I was starting to grow up, my, my leg was kind of frozen in time. So I was getting a lot weaker as the rest of me was, was, was starting to grow. Now, uh, when I tried to put weight on it, I would have these spasms and there was this hyperextending thing that was just, it was just a not, not a good deal. If you remember, y'all family knows about that. It wasn't a pretty sight. So um, about 20 years next week, uh, on an early fall day, um, I checked out of school to go to uh, Northeast Medical Center, or the complex down at Northeast Medical Center in Concord. Uh, and I remember that afternoon being very, very dreary. Uh, but um, on that that Thursday afternoon in September, there's a gap in my memory. My memory's pretty good. I can visualize a lot about that point in my life, but there's a gap in that day, in that afternoon, that I don't remember. Uh, we were headed towards the hospital, um, and I, we had just left the store, and the last thing I remember is that mom said, you better buckle up, because I wasn't buckled up. So I buckled up, and we turned on a road about, the, about as long as this church parking lot, and that's the last thing I remember until waking up, what was about 15 minutes later, I woke up in a field looking up at the ashy gray sky. And as I began to raise my head, paramedics began to surround me and say, he's, he's awake. Uh, I was put on a stretcher. And uh, again, it was a pretty foggy afternoon, but I remember getting into the ambulance and, and kind of being in and out as the ride to the hospital uh, began. And we ended up at the very hospital we were going to, but not to see the orthopedic. I was in the ER. Um, so that evening, again, it's pretty foggy. I remember not feeling anything as I lay there, but that might have just been from the shock. Um, I, I, could move my, I could move my head, but the rest of me was kind of 
was kind of numb, was kind of just kind of not feeling anything. I could see through the glass in the hospital uh, room next door. Mom and Steph were already there. They were in the wreck, but uh, everyone else, as they began to show up, I could see them kind of filling out the room. My pastor and and a deacon from our church showed up. Uh, Eventually, I remember the doctor coming in, and at that time, I was wide awake, and I remember him saying, well, he's not paralyzed, but some stuff's going on with his knee. And did you know about that? And of course, I'm thinking, is anything else going on with my knee? Because you might not know that I'm here to see, not you, I, I was here to see somebody else. But that appointment, I think, I think we've missed it at that point. Um, so I remember riding home in my grandmother's van, clinging to the blanket that the hospital let me have. I, I remember spending the next week flat on my back on the couch. I, I can't go into my pa- parents' living room without think- thinking about that week and a half where I was just kind of stuck on my back. I couldn't move, and if I tried to, it didn't, didn't feel too well. Uh, so uh, at that point, uh, the orthopedic appointments were pushed back another handful of weeks. And as I lay there that week, and as I, as I went through all this, I remember, I remember praying and believing that whatever was going on would get better soon. But I also remember wondering, what if it doesn't? I wasn't angry and I wasn't really worried. I was 12, so you know my mind was processing all this in a very elementary way. But I remember almost being resigned to the fact that maybe this was just gonna be life for however long it was gonna be. Now, from there, uh, the ground, everything was kind of ground to a halt. Um, I finally was handed off to another doctor and they determined that I had a PCL injury, a tear, that would prevent me from walking. Of course, that was why I was having the tremors and now I couldn't walk. But they said, the bad news is you can't operate on a boy's leg until they're at least 16 because of the, uh, the stunning, the growth that it would cause. So basically they said, hey, it's going to be uh, a little bit of a waiting game. And again, talk about a little bit of a waiting game. It would be a long waiting game. So I spent years going to the Shriners Hospital for further studies uh, to see if I could get a brace to walk semi-normally. Uh, I, uh, we took monthly trips, sometimes multiple times a month, to Greenville, uh, leaving at 5 o'clock in the mornings uh, to get there early enough to get back to school. I think I missed about 20 days of school that year trying to get all this stuff figured out. And what made it all worse was that it appeared from the outside there was no point to it all. My knee looked normal, and to everybody else, it just seemed like I was just going to always be on crutches. Now, the surgery thing, people, uh, I told people, hey, maybe I'll have surgery one day, but, you know, people really didn't know what to say back whenever you told them you were years away from getting better. I know it was tough on my family um, but there was about six to nine months there for me that I was just completely numb to it all. Like I just didn't, I just didn't know what to think about it. Um, the only thing that I really looked forward to was going to church, um, which turned out to be uh, a really uh, important part of my life and an important transition for me. But Lord forbid, if you took me in a store, um, a 30 minute trip would turn into an hour and 30 minute trip. And as the time would pass, 2002 turned into 2006. It's a long time. Um, Casts and braces were tried and there was just no getting better. So after being passed around from orthopedics to neurologists and um, even psychiatrists, because people just didn't really, didn't really believe that anything was wrong. So I remember one of the last trips to Greenville 
I was waiting for a brace to be fit. And I wondered what these prosthetic limbs on the wall were for. And then some kids without arms and legs came in. And it dawned on me, I can't give up. I still had a leg. It may feel different inside, but I've still got one. And there's still hope. Over the next thousand plus days, where I couldn't hardly walk, there were months where I didn't go upstairs to my room because I just didn't want to crawl up the stairs. Um, during all that time, I was surrounded by a praying family, a praying church, uh, an encouraging family that reminded me that we can't give up. Finally, around 2006, summer of 2006, I was referred to Duke to uh, inquire about surgery. And the neurosurgeon did her own scans and to update everything. And I remember coming into the room. It was a really awesome room over there. If you've ever been to Duke um, Medical, the, the complex over there, it's obviously state of the art. I remember her coming into this amazing looking uh, medical room and uh, her checking my leg and showing the scans. And there were clear signs of wear and tear on my leg, but they couldn't, they couldn't fix it with surgery. After years and years of waiting, I can't express how exhausting that whole time was. It wasn't that we haven't been praying and believing that God could heal me. It wasn't that our faith was just in doctors. But after years of praying and nothing was changing and after being told that this one doctor's appointment might might make things better, that was a punch in the gut. It was my gut, if you can imagine how that must have felt. Now, for years I dealt with people asking the same questions, thinking I was making it up. After years of dodging the questions, now what? The doctor said the only thing that was going to help was locking, locking my knee in a partially bent brace, going through intensive therapy sessions, and just not giving up. And just taking it one step at a time. So that's what we did. From July 06 until the next spring, a war brace that rattled. You could hear me coming from a mile away. Um, gradually, I felt a little better. Every day, things got a little bit less shaky. 
But the knee didn't feel the same. It still doesn't. But finally, almost five years to the day, got out of bed one morning, April 2007. And it looked like I could walk normal again. It feels different. It's hollow compared to the other one. It gives out and it aches. But for the first time in nearly five years, I can walk. Now, there were days... And there were seasons and years where I was convinced I probably wouldn't. But there, on an April morning, half a decade later, what once was broken was made whole. What once was lost was found again. What once was given up on was given back. It wasn't an instant. It was a journey, an emotional journey, one on which I and many around me had to learn to never give up. I can't explain how in spite of all that continues to work against it and how a tour in PCL became a stretched one, I can't explain all that. But what's unexplainable cannot argue with what's undeniable. For a long time I couldn't. But now I can. Now there's that theological part of my brain that says, why did it take five years to happen? Or why did this injury happen at all? Why did why does some never receive any miracle? I don't know. And I'm well aware that my story could have went very differently, and by God's grace, I would have learned to accept whatever his will was. But this is bigger than physical and mental, physical and, and material things. This is spiritual. God is doing something within all of us that he's trying to change how we look at ourselves and our scenarios. God took Ezekiel in a valley, into a valley where Ezekiel, Israel's fate was sealed. He saw the loss. He felt the loss, I'm sure. Uh, he began questioning, what have I been wasting my time for? If this is the result of our people, if this is the condition of our people, we aren't God's people anymore. This is a graveyard. Uh, we're just remains of what clearly used to be and isn't meant to be. But here in that valley, God spoke to Ezekiel he had not taken him there to taunt him or to rub it in his face. No, he took him there so that he might make a decision once and for all. Are you going to give up, Ezekiel, or are you going to look up? I'm not going to lie about the condition you're in. This is bad. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is a valley of bones. People died and they're not coming back. It's not going to be the way it used to be. But are you going to give up? Or are you going to look up and believe that I am still in control? 
God says to Ezekiel in verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, God, you know, but I mean, God, let's not do this. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. And I guess you know if they can or not. But why are you asking me that question? Because God wants to hear Ezekiel wrestle with it. And he says, no, 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 Ezekiel, I want you to answer me. I want you to respond to me. What do you think? And he says, Ezekiel, I've got another prophet. I've got another command for you. I've got another uh, 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 proclamation for you to make. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, all dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. But they're dead, God. They're dry bones. I, I don't care. I want you to prophesy to these bones. I want you to speak the word of God to them. Say to them, thus says the Lord to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I'll put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel, do you believe, even as you come face to face without permanent Israel's defeat appears, do you think there's still a reason to hope and believe? Tell me honestly, what do you think? In the middle of that whole struggle back in 2004, I remember hearing a sermon on this very passage, and not long after that, I got what probably every teenager in 2004 uh, would have gotten, uh, an extreme teen Bible. They don't make them this uh, extreme anymore. Uh, but on the cover there, there's that phrase, no fear and no regrets. And I remember thinking, I'm not afraid of what happens next, and I don't begrudge what I've been through. As I got that Bible, I turned to Ezekiel and I began studying the whole book because I was fascinated with his story. I didn't know all of it as I know now, but I was fascinated with his story. And I came to chapter 37 and I remember reading what we just read in verses 7 through 10. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise, a suddenly a rattling. The bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked in the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on those that were slain that they may live. And as I prophesied, he commanded me, as he commanded me, the breath came into them and they lived and they stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. And God says, Ezekiel, I'm going to, down in verse 13, I'm going to open up graves. And I'm going to bring people from their graves. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And then the vision ended. He was taken back to the refugee camp and there were no bones, there were no armies, there were no people back from the dead. But that vision of people coming back to life, that stuck with Ezekiel. <laughs> it stuck with me. God showed Ezekiel a vision of a nation coming back to life, but it was a vision of us coming back from whatever this fallen world has done to us. Now, you may be wondering, there's one line that especially spoke to me. I didn't know what the word sinew meant, so I looked it up in the dictionary, and when I saw that it was a synonym for tendon and ligament, I especially was moved by that. I knew, and it was still three years before things would get better for me, but... I knew God had proven he would meet people at their worst, so I believed that God would meet me where I was. It was there that eventually that God would begin dealing with my heart about where I would end up today. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that, but that's not the point of the story. 
A few years went by, and I remember knowing I had to tell the story, but eventually I realized there was a greater story to tell. And maybe you have given up on believing that things can change for you or for somebody in your family. God taught me in that season of my life that we can never give up. I'm so thankful for the preparation because I would not have made it this far into adulthood and would not have made it into ministry as I have uh, being so young and inexperienced if not for this experience where I was conditioned to never give up. By God's grace, I never will. I don't know what your valley of dry bones is. Maybe there's some stuff that you're ashamed of, some stuff that was done to you, consequences you've dealt with, maybe decisions made for you that you've dealt with, no fault of your own. But no matter what is broken about you, no matter what you've broken, and no matter how broken you are, the message of Ezekiel 37 is that these dry bones can live again. That your story is not over and your story has not ended. Your relationships, your marriage, your family, your dream that God has called you into, but you don't feel like you're ever going to be qualified for. That your personal journeys, you follow the Lord. That there is not, it has not ended, that there still is hope. You know why we know this? Because what ultimately is this all a picture of? Jesus Christ took all that's broken about you and been broken by you. He took all of your brokenness, God in flesh, and he hung on a cross. He there in our valley, in the darkest parts of our life, he died with us and he died for us. That whatever you've done, it's on him. The sorrow, the shame, the sin, he took it all for every one of us at the same time. And just as we needed someone to be a substitute for us in the eyes of God, God put it all on him. And Jesus suffered in our place so that we might come back to life. And God raised him back to life. All that was broken was forgiven and forgotten. And in him, we come back to life. We come alive. So yes, these dry bones can live again. Ezekiel goes on to see a future Israel that's been restored, not the one that was rebuilt by Nehemiah, not even the one reborn in 1948, one better than those, though those obviously are a preview of He sees a permanent, glorious Israel. He sees a new temple filled with the glory of God where God himself rules from a throne. He sees a new altar, but not where sacrifices are being made, but where an altar, where an ultimate sacrifice was made, where all are welcome into the city because of it. We don't bring things to it. We receive from it because Jesus paid it all. And he saves us in his death and resurrection. He sees a river flowing out of the temple into the streams around the city, making the water sweet and refreshing. He sees a city and a nation and a world that once was in exile, but now is in eternity. Once was empty and now full. It once was bitter, but now it's sweet. It once was dark, but now it's full of light. It was broken and now it's whole. It was cursed and now it's blessed. It was dead and now it's alive. Look over with me at the very last verse of Ezekiel chapter 48 and we'll end here. He sees the city that people will live in in all eternity. He sees a gate with a name on, a, a name on the plate above the city entrance. In Ezekiel 48 verse 35, he tells us the name of the city 
from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Now, you know why that word there is important? Because remember back how the book began? That God's word came to Ezekiel in the land of the Chaldeans and the hand of the Lord was upon him there, there in captivity. God came to him. Wherever we are, God meets us and this reminds us and it punctuates the promise to us that the Lord is there. Where? There. Wherever you are, God meets us here, there. How we get there? We come to experience him until by the power of Jesus and he says to us, come alive, dry bones, come alive. His spirit is moving today and inviting all of us to hear these words and believe these words. We have this promise. The Lord is there, where, wherever we are, with plans and power to take us to where he is. I can't believe this for you, and I can't make this personal for you, but I hope you'll take my story as one of many stories that punctuates there's a God who can do the impossible. A God who can take what is unexplainable and do something undeniable. A God who can change every one of our lives if we just put our faith that he is in charge of our story. And by the power of Jesus Christ and through the spirit of God that rose him from the dead, we can be saved and we can be made new and our lives that we maybe had given up on can be given a fresh and new beginning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the amazing power of God. Thank you that you spoke into my life in so many ways. Come alive, dry bones, come alive. And literally, God, I'm an example of that, but more importantly, spiritually, you filled my heart and filled my soul with things that I could not find in this world. Lord, everybody here today, I pray they would experience the resurrection power of Jesus that says to whatever has been given up on, come alive. Lord, somebody today, they've given up on themselves or on somebody or on something that you've called them to. Would you raise them up and show them that there's a reason to believe that it's not over, they can't give up, that you are in control and you're calling to them today right where they are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.